Let me uh, briefly pray and ask the Lord's hand upon this. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would illuminate to us the beautiful truths buried in your word of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Bring them forth and apply them deep to the pits of our soul for the glory of your name. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So today uh, the, the focus will be looking at the what of discipleship. Next week, we'll be looking at the how. This Sunday is about the what, namely, what are the characteristics of a disciple? Uh, what should a disciple look like? How should this process of discipleship be done? In simple terms, how do we do this thing called Christianity, Christ following? How are we as God's people supposed to faithfully follow Jesus Christ and do so in the community of God's people? And next week, we will then look at the how. So this week, we'll be sort of measuring ourselves up against what we see in Philippians to determine whether we are faithful to what we see a discipleship should be like. Next week, we'll be looking at the how, which is going to look at a lot of the practices that we have as a church from things like church membership, from things like church discipline, why we gather morning and evening, why we focus on prayer on Wednesday evenings, all of these things that I hope to show how these things that we do aren't just arbitrary things, they're not just arbitrary practices that we have. They are actually intentional practices to further this discipleship process that we're going to see today. So today we're simply looking at the what of discipleship. And I believe a helpful launching pad for this is to look at the book of Philippians uh, because we want to understand what discipleship looks like in the context of the local church, which I believe is the necessary place for people to follow Jesus. Though uh, at times disciples may be required to cross land and sea, to take up their cross and follow Jesus by heading over to a, an unreached people group or something like that. And that may well be the case, but I think for a lot of people, we wanna understand what does it look like to be a disciple just uh, in my local community, in the church. So I think the best starting point is to look at what the instructions we have in scripture are to followers of Jesus in local churches who are just living their lives trying to do what is faithful in following Christ. So let's clarify some terms first before we jump into this. A disciple is simply a follower of Jesus. The word disciple means follower or learner. A disciple is someone who is following someone or they're learning from someone and they're not simply learning the content of what that teacher is teaching. They're actually learning the, the way of life. In a Jewish context, a disciple was someone who followed a rabbi who would then learn not simply the content, but they would learn the life of the rabbi. They would learn how to live by living with that particular teacher. If you think about a modern example of an apprenticeship, 
So a, a, a disciple then um, will go on this process of discipleship. Likewise, an apprentice will then go through an apprenticeship. If you think about a carpentry apprentice, they will then undertake a carpentry apprenticeship where it's usually a three or four year period, a fixed period where they learn all of the skills necessary to become a qualified carpenter. And through that process of three or four years, there ought to be clear signs of growth so that that carpentry apprentice comes out fully qualified, signed off as a genuine carpenter. Similarly, for followers of Jesus, we engage in this apprenticeship, this process of discipleship where we learn what it is to be like Jesus. We learn what it is to follow Jesus. We learn what it is to look more and more like Christ in the community of God's people. The difference, of course, between our apprenticeship and a carpenter is that ours is a lifelong apprenticeship. And it's a no-takes-back. You don't get to select your level of apprenticeship in following Jesus. I'll have the light path, give someone else the heavy path. We all take the non-negotiable pathway of a lifelong apprenticeship of following Jesus Christ, which requires us to take up our cross and follow him to give absolute allegiance to Jesus Christ. So it's a lifelong apprenticeship. We are working toward that final graduation, similar to an apprentice who graduates after three or four years and gets signed off. We are working toward that final graduation, you might say, where the Lord calls us home and we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we are longing for in this process of discipleship. So a Definition, discipleship is where those who have trusted in Jesus Christ follow a lifetime course of learning how to worship, serve and honor Jesus Christ while being conformed to the way of life that he has set before them. It's both about learning uh, the content, but particularly about learning this way of life. Our lives are supposed to be being conformed to what we have seen in Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, before we look at these marks of a disciple that we are then going to measure ourselves up against, I just want us to try and jump two hurdles uh, so that we can then rightly grasp discipleship. And the hurdles are what I would say are misunderstandings or things that are wrong with our current state of discipleship. So these are hurdles that we have to jump in order to grasp true discipleship. The first hurdle that should be no surprise to come out of my mouth is consumer Christianity, a a consumer-driven mindset. Over the past few decades in the West, we have allowed a consumer-driven mindset into the church. Churches become more like an event that you attend, and that event is largely geared toward pleasing our natural desires for entertainment. The event must feel vibrant. It must grip our natural desires. Uh, It must captivate us. So churches end up creating pathways for these consumer needs to be met, like having a, a cafe before and after the formal gathering so it feels really hospitable. There's nice treats and coffee available. We have tailored small groups based off both personal interests and similar demographics so that if you want a group with middle-aged men who are interested in hiking, then we'll funnel you into a small group with other middle-aged men who like hiking. We now have online services so that people can 
worship, quote unquote, from the comfort of their living room. We have really allowed this consumer-driven mindset to infiltrate the church. And here's why I believe this is a major hurdle that we must jump over in order to grasp true discipleship. I do not believe that a consumer-driven mindset within the church makes disciples of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that it actually makes disciples of Jesus Christ. Rather, I believe that it facilitates the existing discipleship of the world because we're all going to be discipled. Christians don't have a monopoly on discipleship. Everyone is going to be discipled by something. Everyone is going to be discipled by a way of life that they see presented before them. And the world has this discipleship that is geared toward pleasing individualistic consumer-driven needs. If you spend enough time in this world, you will be conformed to think that the, the purpose of your life is really to please yourself, to live a happy life full of flourishing, and everything in the world should be geared toward making that happen. And churches that allow consumerism to come in facilitate this existing discipleship of the world, which is one of individualistic consumer-driven needs. And we just say, Jesus can help you get that. Jesus can help you get your best life. And we facilitate this by an environment that is really driven toward pleasing every individual need. So this merely continues the existing worldly discipleship where we desire cheap entertainment, instant gratification and low cost community. That's what people desire. And in this environment, the church becomes more like a business than a family. Worshipping together is seen as a vibrant weekly event rather than a time of holy and reverent adoration, which then shapes every other part of our week. The church becomes about meeting our needs rather than shaping us to look out for other people's needs above our own. Now, that first hurdle leads to the second hurdle. So we need to jump over that hurdle and really reject that in order to grasp true discipleship. The next hurdle that we get to is that we have lowered the bar to cater for immaturity. That environment necessarily means that Christians have one or two options. We either say, okay, the whole church is apostate and no one's a Christian, or we then say, actually, the bar's not all that high. If you just come as you are, and we'll accept you as you are, then that's okay for us. And so we lower the bar of discipleship. We have tried to accommodate the immaturity and false discipleship that naturally flows from this. And it is never a good thing to accommodate that kind of prolonged immaturity of professing followers of Jesus. For example, we have a number of children in our church, all under the age of six. I believe Isaac's the oldest here. We have young children and we're very thankful for where they're at now. And we can see the growth in those children because we expect growth immaturity in children. Now that's great, but what if in 20 years time, our children stayed exactly the same? What if in 20 years time, Lewis as a 21 year old is still eating bark and sticking his head into rubbish bins to see what's in there? We would know that something has gone terribly wrong because we expect growth in maturity, right? We expect that kind of growth in maturity. 
Why is it that we do not expect followers of Jesus to grow in maturity? Why is it that we are okay with someone who has supposedly been following Jesus for 20 years of their life, not seeing any sign of growth in maturity? Now, I'm not talking about perfection. The Christian life is not so much about perfection, but about direction, direction toward maturity. So some people will move on to maturity and it feels like they are crawling on their knees, but they're moving on, progressing. Others, it may feel like more of a run, but either way, we're all moving on to maturity. And we ought to have that expectation that we are moving on to maturity. It's a biblical expectation. For example, the writer of Hebrews, who really gives a a sermon And in Hebrews 5, the the preacher, you might say, has just been preaching on all of these beautiful things of the supremacy of Christ. And then finally, he he has to take a bit of a sidebar toward the end of chapter 5. And he says, these things are hard to explain to you because you have become dull of hearing. The word is literally lazy. Quite a comment for the preacher to make. These things are really hard to explain to you because you are lazy. That's what he's saying to the congregation. He says, you become dull of hearing. And he goes on to say, you need milk, but you should be having solid food. You're like children, but you should be adults. You should be teachers of the word, but you still need someone to teach you. And he is really lovingly rebuking them, but also exhorting them to, hey, move on to maturity because it's a biblical expectation. And so the second hurdle that we need to jump over is to keep that expectation of growth in disciples, people growing and moving on to maturity. We must not lower that bar to accommodate immaturity for we are doing a disservice to people who may be on a pathway to hell because we have said that you're doing okay without ever exhorting them to Christ likeness. So we leave the bar of discipleship where it is. So those are the two hurdles that I just want us to jump over and push against in order to grasp what true discipleship is. And now we're going to look at these six marks of true discipleship in the book of Philippians. So the first mark that we see is in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. This is Paul's prayer for the Philippian church. And the first mark that we see of true discipleship is that it is one of preparation. Paul's prayer for the Philippians is where he prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I love that he connects uh, love with knowledge and depth of insight. Our love for Christ should naturally lead us to a deeper knowledge and discernment. And he says, I pray that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And then my focus here is on verse 10, which he then gets to the purpose for that love abounding in knowledge and depth of insight. So he says, I hope this is happening. And then verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent, which is basically so that you may be mature, so that you may have discernment to know what is right, to know what is wrong. And then here midway through verse 10 is the real focus. And in your Bibles, you probably have a, if you have an ESV, a so that um, at the beginning of verse 10, the main so that is actually midway through verse 10 where we have, so that you may approve what is excellent, and this should be a, so that you are pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's Paul's purpose there. 
love abounding in knowledge and depth of insight so that you would be um, able to discern what is excellent. And then the main purpose here is so that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Discipleship, our whole life is about preparation for that day when Christ returns. That is fundamental to discipleship. It is a life of preparation for that day where Christ returns. An apprentice longs for that day of graduation. An apprentice longs to get off $6 an hour to finally get signed off and be fully qualified. A disciple of Jesus longs for the day of their graduation where Christ calls them to himself where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That is what a disciple longs for. Hebrews 9, 28 tells us that Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The picture is that there is a, a whole flock of disciples who are eagerly waiting for him. They're eagerly waiting for him, for their life is one of preparation. So a question for us. Are you prepared for the day of Christ? Are you ready? If Christ was to pierce the sky right now and a trumpet would sound like you have never heard before in your life and it would captivate the gaze of every single person on this planet, would there be a sense of eager expectation? Would there be a deep longing? As if to say, this is the moment I've been waiting for my whole life geared for this moment where my Savior returns? Or would there be a fear? Would there be a shrinking back in that moment as you realize your life of discipleship was a sham? If I signed up for a marathon, which I'm not going to do, if I signed up for a marathon for next year at some stage and I did zero training, no running at all, and then that day came then of course I would be an utter failure when that time came for the marathon. I would be unprepared. When that day of Christ comes, when that day that Paul prays for here, that we would be pure and blameless for that day, when that day comes, will you be prepared? Will your life have been one of preparation? Have you engaged in training of a disciple? Are you meditating upon the word of Christ? Are you seeking the Lord in prayer now? Are you increasingly gathering with God's people? Is your life one of preparation for that day? The first mark of true discipleship is that it is a life of preparation for the day of Christ. The second mark is that of worthiness. If you come along through the rest of chapter 1, you get to verse 27 of, of uh, chapter 1. This is Paul's first main command to the Philippians, where he says, make sure your manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Make sure your manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word for manner of life here relates to, to being a good citizen, it's about your public life. It's not about your private life as if to say, make sure your private life of devotion to the Lord is worthy of the gospel. Rather, it's about your public life. Make sure your life as a citizen, as a follower of Jesus in the community of God's people and outside, make sure that is worthy of the gospel. 
Now, what does it mean to have a life that is worthy of the gospel? Because part of the beauty of the gospel is that it reminds us that we are all unworthy of God's favor. The gospel reminds us that no one can make any claim of worthiness to approach a holy God. We are all unworthy. And yet we're called here to live a life that is worthy of that gospel. Although there is no sense of worth in terms of what we do, we don't do anything to receive that gospel. Rather, once that gospel has been received, there is a requirement upon us to then live in a way that is worthy of that gospel. In other words, to say we are demonstrating that we have truly received the grace of God and it's working within us and we're showing our worthiness, not because we had anything in and of ourselves, but because the same grace that saved us is now producing a life within us that demonstrates that God has indeed intervened in our life. And we are living in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And what does Paul have in mind here for a manner of life worthy of the gospel? If we read on in verse 27, he says, whether I'm with you or absent, my desire is that I hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not being frightened, that is intimidated in any way by your opponents. So worthiness here is about a fearless unity, a fearless unity. The marks of a worthy community of disciples is where there is a unity within the body, both in terms of our love for one another and our love for Christ. But then there is also a unified stance. The picture is one of an army against an opposition, a unified stance as we defend the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. That's the worthiness that he has in mind here. It's both an internal worthiness that we love one another, our love is abounding, but also we're unified in our desire to defend the gospel of Christ, to fight for the faith, to fight for the truths of God's word. And the foundation for this unity is always the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why Paul says here, make your manner of life worthy of the gospel. Why the gospel? Because the gospel is the great leveler. The gospel reminds us that we are all unworthy servants. The gospel reminds us that we are all desperate beggars who have stumbled across bread and we're just telling other desperate beggars where to get bread. The gospel reminds us that we have no sense of merit before God. And desperate beggars do not bring into the church prideful or selfish desires that inevitably create disunity and conflict and frustration. Rather, those who have truly come face to face with the gospel bring humility and selflessness because the gospel reminds us that apart from the grace of God, the only thing we are worthy of is hell. That's the reality. That's why the gospel levels out humanity, because it doesn't matter how impeccable of a person you are or how wretched of a person you are. The gospel brings everyone down to the one level of utter unworthiness before God. And this actually creates a unity because the gospel centered unity that comes about as we are confronted with this means that we have a unity, not because we all have the same likes and dislikes, Rather, in spite of all of our uncommon likes and dislikes, we have all been mercifully saved by a glorious God. And that salvation is enough to bind us together more than anything in this world. That's where our unity comes from. So the irony here is that to be worthy of the gospel 
is to be worthy of something that you are unworthy of. And the more that you remind yourself of your unworthiness, the more that drives humility, the more you actually live in a way that is worthy of the gospel that has saved you. It is our unworthiness that drives a humility within us as we come face to face with our salvation before a merciful God that then pushes us toward this unity because it rids us of all selfishness. It rids us of all pride that we bring in, which creates disunity. Now, this theme flows well into the next characteristic of discipleship. So we've had preparation. We now have worthiness. And now if we move on to chapter two, we have selflessness. In chapter two, Paul gives this example of how Christ demonstrated the uttermost humility. He, he explains that Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he lowered himself to the form of a servant. What a beautiful picture, like the greatest CEO of the largest company of the world deciding to lower himself to take a position as a janitor, sweeping floors. Christ lowered himself to an unimaginable position. And then Paul in verses three and four of chapter two comes to this mark that I wanna focus on of selflessness. So he says in verse three and four of chapter two, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit is like empty glory. It's an ambition that drives you out of vanity. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this is so groundbreaking because we are conditioned in this society to be increasingly selfish. We're always selfish. Humanity has always been selfish. But I would say this time of the world intensifies our selfishness. Those of us who were perhaps 35 and under grew up in an environment where it was totally normal to have effectively an entire website of information just about yourself, of all of your interests, photos of yourself, and you would beam that out to the world to show when uh, you're waiting in line at the supermarket. And naturally you think everyone should be fascinated with what you're doing waiting in the supermarket line. So you post about what you're doing and it conditions you to be increasingly selfish. To have this page that is just devoted to what you're doing in your life and then what you're interested in about other people's lives. It produces vanity. We see this selfishness as well in examples that I pointed out earlier of consumer-driven churches where it results in professing Christians analyzing churches, church shopping, and moving around to see whether churches fit their music taste, whether it has a good kids program whether it has the right numerical size and demographics that are gonna be right for the time of life that we're at now. It's an incredibly selfish way to go about approaching Christ's holy church. We as disciples of Jesus are called to lay aside these selfish desires. We're called to conduct ourselves selflessly in a culture where certainly I grew up where you're told to have self-esteem. Actually, the Bible calls us to have other esteem to esteem others as more important than ourselves. That's what Paul is calling for here, where he says, let each of you not only look out to his own interests, he's saying, of course, you're going to look out for your own interests. We don't even have to tell you to do that. We naturally are going to do that. But the focus is to look out for other people's interests. Consider them as more significant than yourself. Esteem others 
rather than esteeming yourself. Now, what does this selflessness look like in a local church? This selflessness for some practical applications is where we commit to a body of believers in such a way that our commitment actually impacts major decisions in our life. When we are looking for a new job or a new house or some other major decision, we are actually called in this passage to think of other people in those moments. We are just in a culture where we naturally only think about ourselves when we are approaching these major decisions in our lives. But we are actually called to think about how this is going to affect our relationships with other people. So if you're moving 45 minutes away from your church and you're still planning on coming, you should be thinking about how that's going to affect your relationship with the brothers and sisters in your community. You're going to be far less accessible. It's not saying that we all have to be Amish and live in one community, but it's just saying think about other people. Think about your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a really God-glorifying thing when followers of Jesus might actually think, I was going to book that holiday in February, But I remember that Joanna lost her father last February. And I think it's going to be a really difficult time for her. So I'm actually not going to book that holiday. I'm pretty flexible and I can go three months later. Joanna might not even need me, but I'm just going to make sure that I'm available for her in this moment because I care about my sister in Christ. That's a God glorifying way of actually putting into practice this kind of selflessness that we are called to. This this trickles down into small decisions we make that point in big ways to the beauty of selflessness. Things like even timeliness, showing up on time. It's not about it's not only about honoring God, but it's actually about honoring the brothers and sisters that we have covenanted with that we have actually committed to. So when you show up at a family dinner, if you have a family dinner for 6.30, it's a really dishonorable thing to then show up at 7 o'clock when we've committed to actually coming at this time. This is actually just showing how selflessness impacts so many things. This is why we let our family know, our church family know when we're not going to be here because believe it or not, everyone should actually be caring about everyone so that if someone doesn't show up, We should actually be concerned. I wonder if that person's okay. It's a really selfless thing to think, I'm just going to let them know, hey, I'm not able to make it. You don't need to give an essay of why you're not here, but just to say, not going to make it tonight. Hope to see you next time. And it's a really selfless way of actually considering other people as more important to say, hey, they might be actually concerned when I'm not there. It's a really selfless thing. These are all wonderful ways that we push against the self-centered individualism. See, we're all influenced by this, this self-centered individualism. And I find it quite ironic that as someone who grew up playing sports, that it was just ingrained within me that when it was game time, I had to show up on time. If I wasn't going to make training, I had to let the coach know. Why is it that we don't do that with the church? We should have an even greater level of reverence and commitment to the church rather than our soccer club. See, we've lowered the bar so much. We can push against this self-centered individualism and live consistently with the selflessness that Christ calls us for. Now, we're going to briefly go over the last three. These will be brief. As we move on in Philippians 2, Paul goes on in chapter 3 to speak of his deep longing for Christ, how Christ is to be treasured above everything else. 
And then finally, he gets in verse 17 to this key aspect of discipleship. In verse 17 of chapter 3, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Discipleship is a life of imitation, of imitating others. Notice that Paul says, Brothers, imitate me. He doesn't explicitly say imitate Christ, though, of course, that's the goal. So Paul is not calling anyone to imitate him uncritically. He is calling them to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Here is the beauty of the body of Christ. Jesus calls his followers together in one body and then he graciously gives us faithful brothers and sisters whose lives we can look at and say there's something that I find spiritually attractive about that. I love the way that guy is committed to prayer. I love the way that that brother or sister shows what selfless love is like because they consistently hang around till everyone is gone just to make sure that no one needs a lift, just to make sure that everyone is okay. See, this imitation is actually multi-directional. Not only do we look to others, not only do we look to others who are mature in the faith and pursue what they model as they pursue Christ, but actually this discipleship, this imitation is dual directional in the sense of we as followers of Jesus are also growing in Christ's likeness for the sake of those behind us. And this is a call to all of us. Not only are we looking forward to others, but we ought to be trying to imitate Christ so that others in the future may inevitably imitate us. We're doing it for the person who in 10 years time joins this church and they need other faithful men or other faithful women to look at to follow Jesus Christ. And so that's part of why we are growing as disciples of Jesus. We're trying to imitate looking forward and we're trying to grow as disciples so that others in the future may then look to us to then imitate Christ. Now, fundamental to this imitation of Christ's likeness is again this unity unity that Paul has called for. He called for it in verse 27, where he saw, we saw how worthiness means living in unity. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says the exact same expression again. He says, stand firm in the Lord. Paul calls for a unified stance as he then addresses, he's kind of uh, giving a bit of a, a, um, an, a preface to then what he's about to address in verse 2, which is church conflict. He's about to address disunity. The reality is that within a body of believers, there will be conflict. We are still plagued by sin that surrounds us, and so there will be conflict. There is no expectation to have a complete harmony in a church with no conflict. Rather, the expectation is that followers of Jesus will be living in a way that is worthy of the gospel and therefore able to overcome conflict in order to make peace. And so the fifth and second last mark of discipleship is that we are called to be peacemakers. Peacemakers. We see this in verses 2 to 3. Paul entreats these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. There has clearly been some form of division. And Paul calls them literally to think the same way in the Lord. He calls them to such unity. The phrase here where he says to agree in the Lord is to think the same way in the Lord. To come back to such a unity that your minds are in sync. 
This is a call for complete reconciliation back to the place of unity that is rooted in the gospel of Christ. Notice that it is not simply a call to keep peace. It is a call to make peace. A peacekeeper is someone who tries to avoid the conflict in order to keep the peace. We are not called to be peacekeepers. We are called to be peacemakers. This is the expression that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 5. A peacekeeper avoids conflict. A peacemaker is someone who approaches the conflict in order to make peace. See, Paul doesn't say to these women, Euodia and Syntyche, just, just take some time on your own. We'll find you different small groups and different teams to minister in on a Sunday. We'll just give you some separation and then in time you can come back together. No, he actually exhorts them and he is very clear in the original language to exhort each individual to say, come back together in the Lord. Come back to unity. Make peace. Being a peacemaker requires that we overcome whatever awkwardness or hurt there may be in bringing things to the surface. We rip it off like a band-aid. We approach the conflict in order to seek restoration. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus talks about this kind of idea when addressing sin in the church in Matthew 18, he addresses it to the one who has been sinned against. He doesn't address it to the sinner. This is where Jesus says, if someone sins against you, then go to that brother or sister. If they don't listen, take another brother or sister with you. And then if they don't listen again, take it to the church. Jesus addresses that to the one who has been sinned against. Now, he's not saying that sinners are absolved, the one who actually creates the offense. Of course, they should be trying to make peace. But what I believe is happening here is that the reality is for genuine followers of Jesus, it's often easier to make peace when you have been the one who has wronged someone because guilt is a powerful driver. So it's often easier to make peace when you're the one who has wronged someone. Whereas for most people who have been wronged, our temptation is to either stay in a self-righteous victim mentality, well, they've wronged me, I'll wait for them to come, or our temptation is just to avoid the conflict. But Paul and Jesus calls these two women to make peace regardless of whether they are the offender or the offended. It doesn't matter. The call is to make peace at all times, to leave your gift at the altar, to go and seek restoration with your brother or sister, to make peace. This is the call of true disciples. We confront whatever sin or damage there has been and we seek restoration so that we keep this unity that is worthy of the gospel that is worthy of Christ's call, that we would love one another just as he has loved us, that there would be such a unity. Now we lead into our last mark of discipleship. And if you're anything like me, then you should be saying the one glaring omission of these marks of true discipleship. And by the way, this is, of course, not exhaustive. This, there are many other marks that we could focus on. These are just what are clearly drawn out through the book of Philippians. But the last mark that I want to focus on is one where we are called to absolute devotion and adoration of Christ. And the wording for this last mark I've called calculated meditation upon Christ. See, we could have all of these marks, all of these preceding five marks of preparation, of worthiness, of selflessness, of imitation, and of peacemaking. 
But all of it must flow out of hearts that are genuinely ravished by Christ. This is the most obvious mark of a disciple, but often it feels as though in our society, it's pushed to the side. But we, of course, must have hearts that adore Jesus Christ, that love Christ, that treasure him. And so in verse 8 of Philippians, Paul moves to this where he talks about meditation upon these particular things that he lists. Now, meditation is not this weird mix of Western mindfulness and Eastern religious practices. True meditation is rather where we fill our minds. It's not about emptying ourselves. It's, of course, about filling our minds with intentional thoughts upon the goodness of Christ. So in verse 8 of chapter 4, Paul says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, the word for think about is a word that means to calculate or to deeply consider, which is why I say calculated meditation upon Christ. That's what we are called to. We're not called to just put on some sort of worship, chill music and let our minds drift off. We're called to intentionally meditate upon Christ through his word. That's what we are called to. We are called to fill ourselves with wonderful truths about Christ. See, Paul gives all of these virtues here. And I believe that clear in his mind is, of course, thinking about how Christ perfectly models every one of these virtues. Think about it. The, whatever is true, think about the trustworthiness of, of Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is utterly trustworthy because there is no lie within him. He is utterly dependable. Meditate on whatever is honorable. Think about the honor that is to be given to Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. There is not a single square inch of this world that he doesn't reign over. He is worthy of every ounce of our devotion. He is worthy of that honor. Think about the justice. Whatever is just. Think about the justice of Christ, where he is the perfect judge. And he is the one by which, not only being the perfect judge, but the one by which God then justifies us as the ungodly. The purity of Christ. Think about the reality that there is not a drop of sin or imperfection in him. Never a single bad thought. A life of perfect obedience. A life of utter purity. Crystal clear purity. We are to meditate upon how Christ upholds that. Think about the loveliness of Christ. There is no one more majestic or attractive to our deepest desires than Christ. And then finally, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. These are all just synonymous to refer to how worthy Christ is of every ounce of our adoration. See, these, this is what must undergird all of our discipleship, calculated meditation upon Christ. Everything flows out of that. If it doesn't, then it will become exhausting. It will become some path of legalistic desires to look more and more like Christ as opposed to an overflow of desiring to be prepared, of desiring to be worthy, of desiring to be selfless, desiring to be imitating Christ, desiring to be a peacemaker because we have been so gripped by Christ. 
We are full of adoration, and that is what drives these marks of a disciple. We're going to remind ourselves of this by singing before we take the Lord's Supper. And I can think of no better song to sing than Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts, which you'll find on page 31 of your songbook. Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts, a beautiful song which captures how lovely Christ is, how worthy of adoration He is, how our hearts ought to be gripped by Him. So let me pray and then we will sing together. Father, I ask that you would please make us worthy of the gospel that we have received by your spirit in this community. Make us to live in a way that would reflect these marks of discipleship. Make us to live in a way that would honor you, that would honor Christ and the gospel that has saved us. And as we sing now, Align our hearts with the words that we are singing so that you would be glorified and we would be brought together in this wonderful unity that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.